So now we're going to go into the interactive case discussions. The leader of this section will be Dr. Michael Sag from University of Alabama at Birmingham. Everybody's familiar with him. And I'd ask that the panel members come up and we will be addressing questions that Mike's going to be proposing to us and to you, the audience members. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you, Jeff. Um, this is where we have a little bit of fun. Um, the questions and cases that I compiled for this, um, I collect throughout the year. So sometimes at a meeting like this, somebody will ask me a confounding question, and I oftentimes don't know the answer. Um, or in our own clinic, I will poll or get the questions. And I tried to make the questions somewhat relevant to what we do every day, but also to find areas where there aren't necessarily clear answers. Because I think sometimes it's helpful to just see discussion around topics where there aren't clear answers, but yet in our clinics and in our practice, we have to make a decision. Somebody's sitting across from us, we have to decide to treat or not treat or what to use, and a lot of times um, the data just aren't there. So I, I really focus on that. So let me introduce the panel. Dr. Lennox, you know, Dr. Thompson, you just heard from. Wendy Armstrong is a physician at Emory and runs the Grady Clinic and has um, recently been the uh, chair of the HIVMA. And Jonathan Lee, is you'll be hearing from after lunch on Cure, uh, and he's at uh, the Brigham Hospital in Boston, so an ID trained. So this is our group, and we will get started. And as we go along, if you have a question or something you want to say, no, 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 push back, just walk up to the microphone, and we'll uh, incorporate you into the discussion. These are my conflicts. So we're going to go through starting therapy and patients with low-level viremia, baseline M184V mutations, uh, women who are pregnant or thinking about becoming pregnant, and uh, uh, renal, uh, uh, well actually, develop renal insufficiency is what that's about. So I'm going to organize this with a question up front just to orient everybody so you don't get lost in the details of the, of the case so that you're oriented to what we're really getting down to here. So seems like we're starting ARV on just about everyone, but what about starting therapy immediately at the time of diagnosis? And this is in your local practice, not somewhere else. So a 30-year-old uh, female comes in. She was diagnosed four hours ago in the ER. She's still in the ER. She's asymptomatic. Um, her HIV RNA is pending. Her CD4 count is pending. Um, uh, HLA-B57, of course, is pending. Genotype is pending. No prior um, medical therapy. And she's okay to start if you think she should. So where would you, when would you start? Right there in the ER, uh, within one to two days, in the next two weeks, two to four weeks, some other option, go ahead and vote. So it could be that anything goes on this answer. Uh, it gets better. This is just a warm-up. Just a warm-up. Stay with me now, as Al Franken would say. All right, we have kind of a mixture. Uh, Wendy, you guys have tried this. Um, what do you, what's your experience? So I'm a proponent of starting early. I think that it sends the right messages to patients, um, and I think it can be done safely. Uh, that 
we believe that treatment is important for their um, HIV infection and that the medical system is investing in them and not sort of saying you have a serious problem, come back in a while. Um, I think that, so I would favor one of the top two answers right now in the ER or within one to two days, and which of those I favored would depend a lot on if I had the right person in the ER able to really discuss this with the patient. Um, uh, uh, I don't think it should be, oh, and here, by the way, on your discharge prescriptions are your Descovy dolutegravir. That's the wrong approach. So it depends who's in the ER and who can discuss this, and can there be a warm handoff to a clinic? If not, I think uh, uh, getting that patient to a clinic and starting uh, immediately. And again, I think it can be done safely without needing all the laboratory data back um, before starting. Yeah. Other comments from the panel? My, my one concern is that in the randomized studies that have been done, it does show that you increase retention, decrease viral load, but still about a quarter of the people get lost to follow-up and you don't know what happened to them. So I think it's, it, I think it's a good thing that we're starting earlier, but we really need to double our efforts when we give somebody a month's worth of antiretrovirals that we try to find them yeah. within that month if they don't make their one-week yeah. appointment. No. And, you know, I echo those concerns. I, I'm a big believer in rapid start. Um, I, I think the studies do support that. Um, but I actually wanted to ask Wendy to just say a word about what it took in their clinic to implement rapid start, because I, I think it is a different way of doing things. And, you know, I think it's worthwhile, but it's, it's not just a no-brainer as to how to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Comments real quickly, because we've got a lot to go yeah. through. Just uh, let's go to the back, Dr. Kaufman first. Yeah, what about the viral load? Are you not interested in that before you get started? Well, you, you could start, and if the viral load comes back undetectable, we're going to get to that type of question in a little bit, if there is no viral load at baseline. Um, and then the level of, I think you're getting to as well, um, there are several regimens, as you know, that we can use pretty safely at high viral loads. We would probably want to avoid uh, abacavir without dolutegravir, and we probably would avoid abacavir right now anyway until we have a B5701. And a lot of people are starting with some general regimen that's generally safe, and then they can switch over if they like. Real quick. Yes. So I guess you mentioned one of the most important things is the setting. In my setting, I'm infectious diseases. I'm in the hospital. When they call me, diagnosis, I start the treatment yep. immediately, call the clinic coordinator. She comes to the to the hospital in that, and as soon as the patient leaves the hospital, goes to the clinic. Yep. That's so I think we all have, um, yeah. I think we all have experiences, and that's the whole point, I think, at the end of the day for this question. It's really what works for you. Very quickly comment. But we got to keep the comments a little bit, I, I, we could spend all day on this. I've got 12 cases, so let's go, let's go in the back here and then up front to Annie, and then real fast. In any of your cases in the ER where you did rapid start, did you have any cases of people who knew they were positive and lied for their disclosure? That happens, absolutely. Um, so it might not be a brand new diagnosis, and that raises the question of resistance, so it raises one of the risks. Andy, real quick. Just a point about the quality of evidence. This is a slide that combines observational data with clinical trial data. Mm -hmm. In a, in a systematic review, and the concern is that you're giving equal weight to those. That's right, and there's one other concern with this particular, is that a lot of the studies, especially the randomized trials, have been done in Sub-Saharan Africa. That's a whole different world, right? You got people who are traveling sometimes long distances, and to be told they're HIV positive and sent home, that's not really a good thing without being treated. 
The other thing is that this is a study out of Atlanta with Ural's clinic um, where this was done and you saw some improved outcomes, but it became overwhelming. In our ER, it's impossible. Forget about it. Our ER is socked in every day with, I don't even know the number of patients coming through, but it's thousands. And to, to incorporate, we got the testing incorporated. We're happy and proud about that. But to actually implement testing and treatment is just an impossibility. So I think the take home point, we'll move on, is that it really depends on your individual setting. But also, the sooner you get started, and it doesn't have to be right then and there, but within certainly the first week, if you can, what we've been doing now is leaving blank slots in uh, openings in our schedules to, to slot in newly diagnosed people. And if we're successful in testing, and we're gonna need more slots, so just anticipate it and be ready for it. That's the take home point. So now what regimen should I use? 48 year old guy comes in HIV diagnosed. Now we have a viral load and CD4 count 28,650. B5701 is positive. Pause. Wild type virus, normal renal function, okay to start therapy if he should. Here are your choices. Go ahead and vote. And nothing's as amazing as a musical with song and dance. Y'all know this? It's from a play called Something Rock, and this is the best song ever Bright play. lights, stage fights, and a dazzling chorus. You want to be great, and you got to create a musical. I don't know. I find it hard to believe people would actually pay to see something like this. Let's just say it's a Saturday night, and you want to go out on the town. Okay. Ooh. <laughs> I, I tried to say B5701 positive in a pause. But we still got 4% picking Abacavir. Okay, otherwise Abacavir would be fine. Um, comments from the panel? Jonathan. Yeah, so I, I think that, um, you know, I think that most people pick the regimens that we frequently use on our uh, clinic at the Brigham in terms of TAF FTC, Dogitegavir, and now Victarvi. Uh, I mean, both of them are within the DHHS you know, guidelines. And uh, you know, we obviously have a little bit more experience with dolutegravir-based regimens, although then the patient has to be okay with taking two pills yeah. once a day here rather than one pill once a day. But you know, I, I think either one would be fine. Right. The, the, this is the great news at the end of the day. We got a lot of choices. And the guidelines, uh, these are the ISUSA guidelines that just recently came out over the summer. HHS is more or less saying the same thing. And it's leaning towards integrase inhibitors up front. And the reason is that, especially the non-boosted integrase inhibitors, because you don't have to worry about the drug interactions. Um, but uh, this doesn't mean they're the only drugs you should ever use. And the other regimens that we have that I'll get to in a second are, are just as fine in a way. And, and, and I think, uh, especially as generics become available, we may start finding cost creeping in. Um, so we'll talk about that. This is a very nice study that was presented at the IAS meeting over the summer. Uh, but basically, you can't tell a hill of beans difference between any of the preferred integrase inhibitors. Um, they outcomes are basically the same. And even if um, you lose missing equals excluded at the end of the day, they're very, very effective, well over 90% efficacy, which is remarkable. Um, the other regimens. Um, it says if an NSD is not available, integrase inhibitor not available, but I would say uh, we have in integrase inhibitors available, but there may be choices. Maybe it's pill size, maybe it's 
um, something that uh, the patient feels strongly about. Ropivirine, we still use some of. I think Raltegravir is a really nice choice, especially around the time of pregnancy. We'll talk about that. Um, but generally speaking, and Durabarine is now available as a fixed dose combination. Th these are all acceptable, good regimens. So when you see it as not, quote, preferred, it doesn't mean don't use. That's the take home point. Um, so here's an emerging option. Would you use Dalutegravir 3TC? Now remember, this person has got a viral load of 28,000 and has wild type virus. Would you use upfront? Dalutegravir 3TC is an initial regimen. Yes, no, or not sure. This is your only shot. Don't go away your shot. I thought you said they were going to get better. They aren't? Okay. <laughs> don't delude, don't ruin me my delusion. So the majority of people wouldn't. Anybody on the panel might use that here? I mean, I think it's a perfect situation if you're going to use it with a relatively low viral load and wild-type virus. Mm -hmm. Others? I, I agree, and I think um, you already alluded to the question of cost. Certainly, again, I think the data are a little unclear in um, patients with CD4s under 200. I suspect as we get larger studies that may be okay, but we don't know that yet. And we don't know about viral loads over 500,000. But otherwise, this is not inferior to a standard three-drug regimen um, that it was compared to. And you mentioned cost. And I think we have to start thinking about cost. And mm -hmm. if we start half our patients on this regimen instead of a standard three-drug regimen, um, uh, in five years, it's like $5 million of savings. Or, uh, and I think if you switch some of your patients to this on top of that, it's you know, in the billions of dollars of savings. And we have to start thinking that way. Right. John. Yeah, I was going to say, as you know, as you get more data on two drug therapy, sometimes uh, you have to switch your thinking. Not not that you know why should we use two drug, but why should we use three drug, right? Like you know why take on additional potential toxicity when two drug is just as good? And one of those reasons might be that we still don't have the length of follow up from the Gemini studies yeah. that we have with three drug treatment, and that's that's a completely valid argument yeah. here. So I, I would I like the first part, especially of what you said, because. Um, those of us who have been here for the 27 years or close to it have lived through going from one drug to two drug to three drugs. And it was presumed that three was better than two. And then they tried four and they said, ah, probably not needed. So they backed back down to three. And, but the reason I think that the three worked better than the two is because of the potency of the anchor drugs back in the day. Now, especially with integrase inhibitors and especially the non-boosted ones, um, these drugs are very potent, and, and um, John alluded to the uh, Gemini studies. Here they are. This is, these are recent data, um, and we also um, uh, we coordinated our talk so that some of the stuff covered at Croy and other places were uh, deferred to this talk. But you can see that the virologic outcomes for two drugs versus three drugs was virtually identical. And, um, you, and this is with a very narrow... Um, 6% or so uh, confidence interval about uh, equivalence or non-inferiority. So that, that's a really tight window and really seemed to work very well. But what was fascinating, and this is new information relatively speaking, is that the higher the viral load, it didn't matter. Mm -hmm. Which was maybe on the first blush a little surprising because you think two drugs, you probably need the third drug for a higher viral load. But you can see here, 
that if anything, it doesn't, it's not anywhere close to statistically different, but it certainly is no worse. In fact, it may be a titch better. That's probably just random, random outcomes. But greater than 500,000 copies, it seemed to work okay. And so I think we just need to start processing and, and Wendy's comment about costs may come into play. It's not exposing to a potentially um, uh, renally uh, uh, complicated uh, regimen. And there's no very little concern about bone there. Maybe the weight gain, but that's going to be with all the integrases, theoretically. Durabarine, I mentioned there are data that came out recently. I'm just to be broad-based and balanced. Um, this was non-inferiority to boosted darunavir. And so now, uh, another question. You have them on a regimen. They come back um, within two weeks. Uh, which drug is most likely to cause a 0.1 milligram per deciliter jump in serum creatinine one week after starting therapy? And I will tell you that 62% of you got this wrong on the pretest. So go ahead and vote. That's a hint to change your answer. Sorry, is that an answer? Shut up, go home and pull your damn pants up. As for you, Mr. Bruno of the Shire, 96 G's ain't enough to retire. have enough to knock your ass off. That's from In the Heights. Lin-Manuel actually did, had a musical before Hamilton. Mm -hmm. Okay, so most of you got it wrong again. Um, so this is a learning moment, um, and the thing was a little bit, I, I, I gave the same question last year, so I'm thinking to myself, I must not be very effective. Okay, so what we're, the right answer here is Bictegravir, Bictegravir, and I see all the pharmacologists nodding, mm-hmm, because they know about transport molecules. This is in the renal tubular system. And on the left-hand side, there are two that's called OAT1 and OAT3 that tenofovir is secreted. Uh, but, what, but creatinine, creatinine, we think about as being filtered by the glomerulus, right? That's GFR, right? And it is. The majority of creatinine, sure enough, is secreted or is filtered by the glomerulus. But there's a small fraction of creatinine that's secreted from the bloodstream through the proximal tubule and into the urine. And that accounts for a small amount of creatinine, and that's through an enzyme or a transport molecule called OCT2. And I can remember that because it's my birthday. So if you want to know what presence, yeah. Mm -hmm. OCT2 is responsible for secretion of creatinine, and it's inhibited by a number of drugs, including Bictegravir and Dolutegravir. So expect about a 0.1 to 0.15 bump in creatinine just by giving that drug. It means nothing in terms of true renal function. But when you see it, it's going to cause your estimated GFR to appear to drop. It hasn't moved. The, the filtration rate is still the same. Interestingly, cobecystat also interferes with serum creatinine secretion, but through a different enzyme called MATE1. Mike, there's a quick, quick comment. I just want to say where this where this really comes in handy is with your CKD patients. Yeah. Because it's uh, creatinine of 1.8 may go to 2.1 or 2.2. That's because, right. Uh, and that's going to scare you, and maybe you're stopping their ACE inhibitor, which you shouldn't be doing. Right. And if you're ever worried about these creatinine bumps, 
just get a UA, and if there's your UA is super bland, mm -hmm. you can know that it's just this, this type of fluctuation. Or if you really want to be academic, you can get a size that and C, and that'll give you the real GFR, and a lot of times it's five or 10 points better in this Yeah, or you can do an inulin clearance in your research unit. Just kidding. <laughs> um, okay, and so this is the example. So these are, this is actually from a study looking at early days of dolutegravir, and look, there it goes. The, it's equivalent to about a point one, two milligrams per deciliter increase. So just keep that in mind. I think the point just made at the microphone is spot on. That's why I asked the question. So I'm expecting on your post-test for more than 62% of you to switch your answer. Please. Mike, can, I, can I make a yeah. comment? I, I think it's important to notice the time course here. So look at that graph. Look how fast it happens. It's almost immediate. It's immediate. It's like the first couple of weeks. And so if you're seeing a bump, you know, 24 weeks into these drugs, that's probably not it. And probably the reason people answered tenofovir is we know we sometimes see bumps yeah. with tenofovir because of toxicity, but that is cumulative over time. It's not the first two weeks. So I think that, that seeing it in the first two weeks um, or first month, whenever you bring the patient back, is reassuring and yeah. then you can go from there. Hence the reason for including it. So, this is right up Dr. Lee's alley right here. Seems like we're starting everyone on treatment, but what about the elite controller? How many people have patients in their practice? Yeah, about everybody. So here's a 30-year-old lady, comes in four, from four years ago. She's asymptomatic. Her baseline viral load has always been undetectable, less than 50, now less than 20. But you check an HIV DNA just to make sure she's infected, and it's positive. CD4 count's been steady at 870, hasn't dropped. Other labs are normal. Um, you even throw out a genotype on the DNA, and it comes back wild type. Um, she's okay to start therapy if you think she should. Would you start therapy on her soon, now? Would you start putting both? Because of thoughts in your head, don't feel those feelings. Are you going to turn Hold it off? In instead, yeah. turn it on. Like Thank you. Ah, most people are going to turn it on. Dr. Lee. Yeah, so this has been a really controversial area. You know, as we know, HIV elite controllers and HIV controllers, viremia controllers tend to have relatively stable disease courses, but more and more evidence show that they have increased levels of immune activation, systemic inflammation. There's been some reports that there's higher risk of um, cardiovascular disease and as well as hospitalizations as well. And of course, some of these individuals do have um, decrease in CD4 counts despite having relatively low viral loads. So we did a study in uh, the AIDS clinical trials group, 5308. Um, and of course, these individuals are extremely hard to find. We enrolled patients from 19 different clinical sites in order to enroll 35 of these individuals, right? So, you know, it, it's, uh, it, which is not all that surprising in that these are patients who've been told for, you know, the, all their adult lives that they're special, that they don't need treatment. It's hard to then, you know, then say, hey, I'd like to invite you into a clinical trial to start ART. And, um, but we did um, enroll uh, 35 individuals who we started on ART for up to two years. And what we found was that um, uh, intrauteral therapy did decrease uh, levels of immune activation and uh, systemic uh, inflammation. That um, the, the magnitude of the effect really depended on uh, what their viral load was. So if they were, so we um, enrolled individuals who had viral loads less than 500 copies. And about a third of those individuals were, also, were elite controllers, less than 40 copies. And we definitely saw the biggest 
response, the, the, the biggest magnitude of uh, immune uh, activation kind of decrease in those who had higher viral loads. So you get a bigger bang for your buck uh, with these individuals with slightly higher viral loads. But we did, definitely saw a, a statistically significant decrease in immune activation, even, even in those who were elite controllers. Now, the study, of course, is small. It wasn't powered for any clinical endpoints, so you have to take that with a grain of salt. Uh, but um, I, I mean, to me, um, you know, for individuals who yeah. have some levels of detectable uremia, I would, I would probably start. But the elite controllers, I would say the data is still. So would you have started this lady? I, I, I may not have. I mean, I think, I think in those cases, I, it's a very, it's an individualized right. uh, um, decision making. You know. So, so let me make it more interesting. Let's say her CD4, CD8 ratio mm. was very low. Yeah. Oh yeah. So, well, does so, that change your thinking? Oh yeah. So, so ART, first of all, ART, even in the elite controllers, we saw a significant decrease in, in uh, viral load by ultra-sensitive uh, um, viral load assays. So these elite controllers, despite having undetectable viral loads by commercial tests, are having active viral replication, are having an immune response. And so ART definitely will further suppress viral load. And um, we saw that it improves CD4, CD8 ratios, for example, in our patients. And so I think in individuals who have lower CD4 levels, I, I think that is definitely an indication to start. And, and uh, Jonathan, start can, one of the concerns about starting somebody is, do you make them a non-elite controller if they decide to stop? That, Could you talk about that result? Another fantastic question. That was one of the concerns when we first designed the trial, was that, um, Will ART decrease HIV-specific T-cell responses that is responsible for maintaining their HIV elite controller status? And then when they stop treatment, will they kind of lose this special status? And so um, we, uh, there were four individuals in this trial who stopped ART, and we had monitoring um, off ART. In addition, um, we um, had a collaboration with Steve Deeks at UCSF, and um, uh, they had five individuals from their scope study who also stopped ART. And what we found is that in um, that yes, that um, on ART, these controllers um, had decreases in levels of HIV-specific immune uh, activity, but when they stopped ART, they maintained their controller status. So, so ART, um, at least for this one to two year period, did not have a negative effect on whether or not they were controllers or elite controllers after they stopped ART, which was very reassuring. So let me give a look under the skirts a little bit of the question I asked. So when in looking at cardiovascular morbidity, other types of comorbidities, um, the number one, one of the number one predictors was CD4, CD8 ratio, that if it was in the lower quintile, uh, lowest group of CD4, CD8, that those people tended to have more inflammatory mediators that were elevated, et cetera. So that, if you're on the fence, that's one thing you could look at. Is a CD4, and if it's very high, if there's a lot of CD4 cells relative to CDH, that was someone you might feel a little bit more comfortable watching because there is equipoise. I'm going to also give a plug to John's talk here um, and ask a question this way. One of the things that we hear about now that um, there's a concern that we'll never, maybe without bone marrow transplant, get eradication of HIV, at least in the near future, people are talking about functional cures functional cures, which to me is the establishment of an elite controller. So what have we gained, right? So what have we gained by creating an elite controller um, if there's still ongoing replication? Yeah, so, so, so um, a, a couple of um, responses to that. So one, uh, I think the higher your viral load is, even at the lowest, the, the lowest levels below 500 copies, you do have a, even before ART, you have a, a pretty direct correlation with the amount of um, uh, kind of immune activation and also lower CD4 counts. So 
so if you can, the lower you can get their, their viral load, the better their immune function is, the better their inflammation is. There are these individuals called post-treatment controllers, which mm -hmm. I'll talk a little bit about um, in, my, uh, in my talk. These are individuals who required ART or who were potentially started on ART during early infection. Yeah, and, and then, then once stopped. they stopped, they're able to keep the viral loads relatively low. Now, what was interesting, this is data that's actually not yet published, but you know, we've seen that they do not tend to have the same amount of immune activation that right. is seen in elite controllers. So I don't controllers. want to steal thunder from your talk, but yes. Yeah, so, so, so it's not clear that, that the functional cure that we can potentially achieve, um, that, or there's a chance that, that those individuals may end up being slightly different than these elite controllers who have better, who are able to control due to HLA, yeah. protective HLA genotypes, and, uh, but, um, yeah. Yeah, so that's why I asked the question, put it in the, the review, because uh, it felt to me, just being honest, that we were going after cure through all the cure research, research efforts starting about a decade ago, and I love the fact that we're looking at that. But when it seemed like that cure eradication was so difficult, people kind of fell back into it. Well, we'll just create a functional cure. And I'm thinking, wait a minute, that's not the same as what you're going to hear about with the London patient in a little bit. So. Should I change a regimen when there's low detectable viremia? Again, we see all this as well. So the story goes, this is a 55-year-old who gets referred to you, who's diagnosed about almost two decades ago. His original viral load was high, his CD4 count was 70. Now his viral load is 85, and before he saw you the last visit, it was 62. His CD4 counts increased nicely. He'd been through a bunch of regimens, but the key thing is he's now on dolutegravir, boosted darunavir and 3TC, he has no historical resistance tests available, but he's got that level. So would you change his therapy based on this? And I'm going to give you a second more, somebody just wrote up and said, give us more time to answer. We will do that, and we will start the clock and the music now. This is a great play. This is Spring Awakening. The song is The Bitch of Living. So a lot of times when patients come in to see me, they shoulder hurts and they're, you know, 68 years old and they've been infected for 30 years and treated and controlled. And they say, you know, what can I do about that? I say, dude, this is the bitch of living. Right? And they're all going through this. So is that a little better, Jim? Okay. So most That was better. Okay, thank you. I'm just warming up. Um, so panel. Would you do anything to his regimen? Is he, does he have a failing antiretroviral regimen right now? No. Right. I mean, I agree. go ahead. You know, low-level viremia, it could be a blip. We don't have two values. And even if it isn't a blip, if you have two values at this low level, there's not any studies that would indicate that you're going to achieve anything clinically by treating this low-level viremia or switching to a new agent. Um, that there, you can have a clinical impact of any kind, so. Yeah. Well, but, and I agree with that entirely, but that said, I think we, you still have to talk with the patient to find uh -huh. out, are they missing doses? And interestingly, I have seen a number of these patients who are on integrase inhibitors and they're taking supplements like calcium or magnesium or something that might be interfering a little bit mm -hmm. with their viral load. So we have to continue to look for other things that could be interfering, but at the and end of the day, um, you know, changing doesn't really help if it's just little blips coming And I would just like to reservoir. add to that, because I had a patient who, I was asking about all these calcium and everything, and I go, well, what do you eat for breakfast? A smoothie. 
Oh, do you make it yourself? No, I get it at Smoothie King. What do they put in it? I have no idea, but it tastes great. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I mean, if you're going to take something with your medicine, which he was doing, mm -hmm. it would be really no good to know what the ingredients are. Yeah, yeah. there you go. John. Yeah, so uh, I think there's been study after study showing that if you have low-level bremia above, say, maybe 200 copies, mm -hmm. you definitely have a higher risk of virologic failure above 1,000 copies. Right. And, um, but there's, I agree, there's, there's, there's very little data showing that, that low low at this level really causes a significant virologic failure. Now, historically, uh, you know, the, it's always been thought that people with low-level viremia is really due to suboptimal ART adherence or ARV drug penetration. Um, but it's always been, it, it's always, it's never completely answered the question to me because, you know, in all these studies, yes, there's an increased risk of virologic failure, but there's actually a lot of individuals who don't fail, who continue to maintain yep. and have persistent low-level viremia. And we actually had one such individual um, uh, at the Brigham who had 18 different viral loads over more than four years between 200 and 800 mm. uh, copies. So we ended up taking... Um, and, and we, had, we had one of our clinicians who kept on kind of bugging me, bugging me to try to figure it out in the lab. And so we took some of the blood from this individual and did some um, kind of single genome sequencing of plasma and provirus and found that, um, first of all, there, it was mostly almost all uh, made up of two main clones, mm -hmm. that there was really no significant drug resistance, yeah. that um, there was no evidence of viral evolution or resistance emergence over three years, sampling you know, at one-year intervals. And that there, for a subset of these individuals, it's, a, it's, it's likely due to a large HIV reservoir that is clonally expanded, mm -hmm. that is transcriptionally active. And in fact, you know, for almost all of our patients, if you use a viral load assay that is sensitive, ultra-sensitive, much more than, than what you get commercially, you can find low-level viremia in just about everyone. A vast right. majority of people will have viral and, loads. And, and so uh, for the clonal proliferation, if you wanted to do something, what would you do? So, um, you know... Put them on methotrexate? Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> so uh, right now, I think, you know, in that individual I was talking about had multiple ART uh -huh. modifications. ART intensification uh -huh. was on a, uh, uh, also on a uh, Descovy, Darunavir, Darutegavir-based regimen at this point. You know, I, I think that... Um, and, and, and nothing was helping, right? And they had drug-level testing, and that showed that they were, they were taking drug. Um, they had commercial resistance testing showing no resistance. Now, I think that hypothetically, being on a PI could um, at least... Uh, which uh, which he's on. Which, right, could yeah. at least have some reassuring effect, because the worry yeah. that this patient had was, was he transmissible? Mm -hmm. Right, and at least right. having being on a PI, you 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 think that most of the virus should be replication deficient, right. but you don't yeah. really know for sure. Yeah, I right? think at the end of the day, the biology is where we need to focus. Right, when you, when in doubt, think biology. And we already got to the point that it's the residual cells that are spitting out virus, but there's not evidence of de novo replication because all antiretroviral therapy does is prevent an uninfected cell from becoming infected, and that's all you can do. And if there's no de novo replication, adding more drugs ain't gonna change anything. Melanie's right, you wanna check and see if, there, if the levels are low where there might be some ongoing replication, but in most cases there isn't. Your data from uh, the study you just quoted, John, was, was uh, evidence of that. Yeah, Elliot. Yeah, just curious whether any of you would alter your U equals U message in this case. No, I, I personally wouldn't, um, but we probably should get into that briefly. Um, the U equals U is based on true undetectable, right? 
but there, the studies out of Uganda way back when showed very little, if any, transmission when viral loads were up to 1,000 off treatment. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it's, it's, it's okay. I don't think we can comment on the replication capacity too much, but uh, what are yeah, your thoughts? I, I, I don't think we know. I think there have been case reports, I mean, including some of these yeah. big trials of some um, transmission events at below 1,000 copies. <laughs> Of the of yeah. the um, of of the person who's transmitting, so you know I I couldn't tell this person one you know one hundred percent that they were not transmissible. Yeah. I would say so. Oh, it's, there are no guarantees yeah. in this bitch of a life. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, but but I think we should remember that undetectable the the studies that we look at you know with all of these um, you know ninety thousand events that didn't transmit, the cutoff was less than two hundred in those studies. It wasn't less than 20 or less than 50. It was, they set it at less than 200. So maybe that gives a little bit more reassurance in right. that low level. Yeah, especially in this patient who's, yeah. what, 80s, right? Yeah. My, that patient I was talking about was yeah. 200 to 800. Yeah. Higher. That's a yeah, real quick worries. comment. But one thing that I frequently do, and it's just common sense and not evidence-based, is I get an HSV2 IgG. And if it's positive, I put them on suppressive uh, treatment. And in a few instances, that has brought them back down to undetectable. It's just the thought that, you know, they have some other viral infection triggering sure. a constant well, uh, and, the, and the biology behind that is that the, the things that activate cells that are chronically infected are precisely co-infections and that somebody gets the flu, their viral load may go up a little bit because cells are becoming activated that are chronically infected. So yeah, this is exactly the discussion I'd hope to have. Um, I'm gonna skip this. This was one of the studies at, at, at Croy. Uh, that bottom line was it, 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 it didn't matter how long it took somebody to get undetectable, in this case greater than 12 months, six to 12 months, or greater than six months with regard to the likelihood of a blip or low-level viremia, but virologic failure was a little bit more noticed statistically, and I think it's a little bit awkward. I was a part of this study, but I'll just tell you that uh, that could be the people who didn't take their medicine well is why it took them greater than 12 months to suppress, and that may have been that type of indicator. So. Let's switch gears to this important topic. Um, what should I use as initial, th initial therapy in a woman who desires to become pregnant? So here's our 30-year-old lady again, and um, she is on, in this case, ARV therapy, and like to become pregnant. She's not pregnant at the moment. I'll go through the whole thing, but she's already on a diotegravir-based regimen with undetectable viral load. So she's not pregnant yet, but she plans to, hopes to in the next six months, and she's on Dalutegravir, Bacavir, 3-2-C. Look through your options here. Let me give you a few more seconds because there's a lot of them. Basically, number one is, is I always say the George Herbert Walker Bush, not gonna do it, change wouldn't be prudent. Um, to some of these other options, go ahead and vote. Which is the See most popular That's because the data are clear as mud. That's mm -hmm. the take-home point here. So, panel, are the data strong enough for you to switch her? And if so, what are you going to switch her to? 
go ahead, Wendy. So this is one of those, like you said, clear as mud uh, situations yeah, where the data aren't there. Is, I said at the beginning, it's not going to be answers to some of these questions. I think the most important thing to do is have a conversation with this woman mm -hmm. and um, discuss the options, discuss the limited data that we do have for dolutegravir right now. It's not clear to me if that's going to turn out to actually be a true signal or if this is something that um, is going to become a non-issue as more cases are gathered. Um, I think, though, it, it would be hard to continue it right now without a conversation. If um, uh, uh, she was interested in a switch based on that, my first choice would have been some other option, which would be a raltegravir-based regimen, but I think mm -hmm. there are others on that list, um, including like ralpivirine, that would be very reasonable. So real quick, um, I've got data to show, but the, the point is that TAF, there aren't enough data yet, they're accumulating, so that's probably, if you're going to switch, I probably wouldn't go to that. TDF and FTC, there's lots of data. Um, Ropivirine, darunavir, adizanavir, um, even efavirins. But remember efavirins, those of you who have been coming to this course for 27 years, do you remember way back when they said, ooh, wow, there's neural tube defects here, huh? And, and it seemed to maybe be related to folate, and they couldn't answer the question, were they on folate? Remember that? Mm -hmm. hmm. Well, let's look at this. TAF, no data yet. But this is, these are the data that Wendy was referring to that sort of shook the world, right? And it was in a location in sub-Saharan Africa, and they noticed increased neural tube defects. And when they asked the question for the few cases, I underscore that word few, did they take folate? No, they did not. And Remember, neural tubes form in the first six weeks, or actually four weeks. So once you get past four to six weeks, dolutegravir is just fine. That's another question on your pretest, by the way. If you're going to start, she's 20 weeks pregnant, and you're going to start, it's okay, perfectly fine to use dolutegravir there, because the neural tube's already formed, right? Again, think biology. But I don't know. Yeah. Um, and I think your point is exactly right. Just to kind of move on, the, um, a lot of groups um, were involved in decision-making here, and they said, well, gosh, we ought to stop using dolutegravir in women who are thinking of becoming pregnant. And rules were passed, and then suddenly, it's, at a meeting, um, a lot of people stood up, women, protesting. How come you're telling me what I can do? Why don't you bring me into the discussion? They were really angry. That, that it was more paternalistic, maternalistic, whatever the term would be, um, that this top-down decision, we will not give you this, <laughs> when dolutegravir in a lot of places in sub-Saharan Africa is absolutely the best drug. Mm -hmm. So they're saying, you're keeping me from the, one of the best drugs because you're concerned about this. Um, and I that's, don't know that's four babies. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, four babies driving that data. Right. Yeah. And I personally think this is going to be a a non-issue at the end of the day. There may be some folate interactions or some studies about that. So if I were taking care of her, I'd probably say, okay, you're thinking, well, let's put you on some folate. It won't hurt anything. Mm -hmm. And then you go ahead and get pregnant. And your decision, I agree with you completely, of whether you want to stay on it or not. And okay. follow-up data showed that there weren't any, there was no more of a signal. Oh, but all it takes two more cases in that group versus others, and it's going to cause more controversy. 
No. So, um, and I point out that these data from Botswana, um, no one got folate because that's right. not commonly right. done in Botswana. Whether that influences this or not, we don't really know. But I also wanted to point out that cobicistat containing regimens actually shouldn't be used in pregnancy right. because uh, the, the levels are insufficient and there have been uh, some viral rebounds in that situation. So, you know, it, it's not an issue of the very earliest days of pregnancy, but later on in pregnancy. But in general, you don't want to be switching people around too much on their drugs. So another reason to avoid cobicistat boosted regimens. And Elvitegravir for that matter as well. So, right. um, yeah, so that you want to avoid those. But Raltegravir, there are now a fair amount of data that make it okay to use. And these are, this is the Raltegravir data and, and with, with Elvitegravir. Um, and uh, bottom line is the data are emerging. So, here's another question. She's on therapy, baby's delivered, healthy. She wants to breastfeed. Her viral load is undetectable. Does U equal U apply here with breastfeeding? Go ahead and vote. I would like to share with you this book of Jesus Christ. Hello, my name is Elder Young. Hello, did you know that Jesus lived here in the USA? You can read all about it now. Hello, in this nifty book, it's free. No, you don't have to pay. Okay, let's see the answer. Hello. Um, okay, so most people would say no. U.S. guidelines? Well, that's what, that's what the perinatal panel says. Right. The U.S. perinatal panel says no. Um, but, you know, in resource-limited settings where there's not adequate water and milk products and stuff like that, then, you know, it's, it's a slightly different situation. Um, and it's unclear. There just are not enough data at, at undetectable viral loads to be sure, but there have been apparently some transmissions, a very small number of transmissions with undetectable virus. And checking virus in breast milk is not actually a very feasible. Right. It's very much um, like the semen story, right? Where they yeah. talk, you can you can PCR evidence of HIV in an undetectable person in their semen, but the clinical data show not. There's no transmission. So you can also see PCR breast milk and get some virus. Is that transmissible? Right. The jury's still out. Uh, so in sub-Saharan Africa, women are encouraged to breastfeed for all the reasons that Melanie said. In the U.S., not so much. But if I think if, if I had a patient, she said, I, this means a lot to me, I really, really, I'd say, okay, here are the data. If you're still really, really fine, uh, let's go ahead and yeah, I think it's up to you. Now this is, sorry? The, med the medications do get transported over, so that is another concern. So you're uh, basically saying that that could be prep, basically. <laughs> or you're worried about you're worried about toxicity. Oh, I see. Baby prep. It's like mini me. <laughs> Little bit of prep. Quasi evil, semi evil. Diet Coke of evil. Not just one calorie. Not quite evil enough. <laughs> okay. So what about M184V being present? So you have the same lady we've talked about before. I made her viral load a little bit higher. CD4 counts 350. She has both an M184 and a K103N. Um, it was transmitted. She doesn't plan to become pregnant. Uh, she's okay to start therapy. What are you going to use? 
I'll let you look at this for a second. There's a lot of the options we've already talked about. The difference here, again, M184V is present. K103N is present. Go ahead and vote. Stand side by side, too few in number and too proud to hide. Oh, this is from Let's say to news the news. others <laughs> who did not follow through. You're still our brother. Alan Minkin wrote this music if you're curious. You. He did Beauty and the Beast and Aladdin and all those things. Okay. Let's see what the answers are. Ooh. You don't like, I mean, it's not good when you hear the moderator go, ooh. All right. What jumps out as being, there's one that's absolutely wrong. Panel, got it. Answer Dahlia, two. Dahlia now, Tiger Bear 3 We didn't talk about this, but your pre-test question talks about it. Right? I've got to make sure. So if you have an M184V, President Baseline, do not, that's the one place where you're not going to want to use Dalyotegravir 3TC by itself. Because it's sort of like using Dalyotegravir by itself. And that's probably not a good idea. So I just wanted to complete the story. So I deliberately didn't talk about it when we talked about Dalyotegravir 3TC. But in those studies, entry criteria like in Gemini, they had to be wild type virus for 3TC, FTC. So that one, sorry, 6%. That one is an incorrect answer. Well, the monocase study just came out with Dalu alone as monotherapy, and the study was stopped for failures. And it what? And the study was stopped. Yes, because yeah. Yeah. it weren't many. I mean, it's, it's remarkably cool and good, yeah. but it's not, yeah. you need, it needs some help. Right. Yeah. right. Why take the risk? Yeah. yeah. So what about uh, other answers? Yeah. In this setting, so I think that you know the TAP FTC Bictegravir, um, people love how small the pill is and how easy it is to take, uh, and there's just not been a lot of data on this two drug combination of TAP and Bictegravir in people that have resistance to that, M184. That's to correct. So this is a follow-up to this is some of the emerging data. Anecdotally, mm -hmm. I think most of us have had experience starting with either Dalyotegravir or Bictegravir with a TDF or TAF, and then you, th you still have the 3TC or FTC involved, and it has some degree of modest activity, maybe up to 0.5 log effect as opposed to its usual 1.2 to 1.4 log when it's wild type. But these are data that was, it was on a poster, um, abstract number 0551, you can look at it online, which by the way, all the posters, all the presentations are online now at the CROI website. But here's the bottom line. The M184V did not matter. And these were people who were, were switching, um, but the presence of the M184V uh, does not appear to be a problem. In fact, M184V increases the susceptibility to TAF and TDF. So it probably compensates in a way. Yes? One of the things we talked about at the Ryan White clinical meeting in December, though, was or my comment had been with Triamec or with Abacavir yes. in there. I, in my opinion, if you have 184, then you, That's, I would not consider that a good regimen. Correct. I, I think most mm -hmm. of, all of us agree with you. Thank you for bringing it yeah. up because I skipped over that. But the reason is, is that um, 
abacavir, it needs several hits for it to sort of lose completely its activity, but M184V is one of the hits on the way. Uh, other uh, TAM-type mutations can be additive, um, but you're right. I, uh, but, but TDF and TAF both will not only retain activity, so those are the better answers. Um, and so I wouldn't have any qualms in that setting. Mm -hmm. Okay, we're going back to what Dr. Lennox presented and kind of put it in the form of a question. We'll have a little bit more discussion. So here's a lady who gets started on BIC FTC TAF 12 months ago, changed from her original regimen, which was Darunavir-based. Um, basically, she's done well, or C4 counts in the stratosphere. Uh, which, by the way, my personal recommend, the recommendation of the ISUSA guidelines is once it goes above 350 and the viral load remains suppressed, don't waste your money on checking CD4 counts. It's wasteful. I know, I know, the Ryan White Care Act still requires you to, but I would just push back and just write in your note, this is really stupid, don't <laughs> check that anymore, I'd rather save my money. But so when the, when the monitor comes and... You just you know, tell them... You're tell, really stupid. Tell Dr. Okay. Cheever. This is not a great use of our money. Um, since starting her regimen, her weight has increased from 145 to 175. And so now, what are you going to do? You're going to keep her there. You're going to put her back on what she was on, um, change to something else. Um, go ahead and vote. Can anybody see? Is anybody waving back at me? Dear Evan Hansen. It's going to be at the Fox in April. Yeah, it's really good. If you haven't seen it, this is a must-see. Yeah, even without him, it's good. So you'll be waiting for the I will tell you that for those of you who are going to see the play, the sun and light is the key metaphor as you watch the play, just saying. Okay, so the majority of you would keep her on TAF FTC BIC, uh, not switcher. Panel? I think that the key question is, is she going to stop her treatment exactly if you don't change? Ah. Yeah. So that's exactly. really what you have to spend the most time on. Yeah. Even if you manage to convince her that nobody knows the answer, if she stops it anyway, then you're gonna yeah, not. And that wouldn't be good. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Other thoughts? It's a conversation. I mean, I, I think, yeah. you know, you when people are gaining weight, you have to ask about their diet. You have to about, ask about exercise. And, you know, I, I don't really know what these findings mean at this point about weight gain, but I think it is a conversation. And obviously, if she said, I'm not taking this stuff anymore, then, you know, you so have to make a change. Right. But I think you also have to, you know, with all of our patients, Honestly, we see a lot of weight gain happening over time, and for whatever reasons, you know, Sophie alluded to maybe some, you know, effects of protease, boosted protease that could have kept weight down over time. I don't really know, but we have to we have to approach it from multiple. Right. So um, you guys areas. are probably a lot like me, and you see a data set like what Dr. Lennox showed you, and you kind of look at it, and the first thing I want to know is why? Mm -hmm. What's going on here? Mm -hmm. So let's dig in a little bit. Notice that most of the weight gain, weight gain in the NA Accord occurred early on. 
once they gained that weight, it, didn't, it wasn't like a straight arrow towards something really awful, but it seemed to happen early. So once you block that out, there might be a little bit more continuing into year two, but the majority of it is up front. So if it is, if it is the drug itself causing weight gain, that if you give the drug or a variant thereof to an uninfected group of patients, people, subjects, you should see weight gain. Guess what? You don't. This is a PrEP study that Rafi Landovitz presented, and there was no difference in weight between placebo and cabotegravir. And cabotegravir is basically dolutegravir, in essence. So that was interesting. I thought to myself, hmm, what's unique about HIV patients that are different than someone who doesn't have HIV? And John, I might have you comment on this, but one of the differences is, is inflammation. So maybe there's a little bit more active suppression of virus, maybe a little bit reduction in TNF and IL-6 and other things that may be causing people to not eat as much or not feel as well subtly or subclinically, and that by suppressing those cytokines just a little bit more, the result is weight gain in the first year. What do you think? Yeah, no, I, th I think you're absolutely right. I, th I think that, you know, to be clear, there is a obesity epidemic in this country. And uh, I think that, um, you know, what you're seeing in these darutegravir and, 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 you know, INSTI studies could just be um, an uncovering this um, natural kind of trend amongst the general population for, um, for increased weight gain. Uh, when their, their um, you know, inflammation and systemic, systemic inflammation and T-cell activation has been tamped down. And dolutegravir and these INSTEs are the best drugs out there, right? I mean, they have beaten pretty much all comers when it comes to uh, virologic suppression, uh, you know, side effects, right? They've, they've beaten out uh, NNRTIs when it comes to virologic suppression rates. They've beaten out all the PIs. So these are the best drugs. And it's possible that, that the mechanism here is not that they themselves are causing weight gain, but that they're making the patients, you know, kind of milieu their, their inflammation um, better. We just don't know yet. It's just still too early. Obviously, the, the case that you presented is pretty dramatic, that, that weight gain. But in general, the weight gain has been a few kilograms, right, yes. on average you know, three or four kilograms, not a huge amount, and, and it might, again, be uncovering kind of, you know, well, this. Yeah, maybe we can encourage folks to start smoking, and that would help them lose weight. <laughs> yeah. Well, and we also don't know whether switching away from menenograce actually would cause those people to lose weight. Okay, so just to dig into that a little bit more, I, I don't think it's a reason to switch therapy, but it probably is something you should alert people to that as you go on to an integrase inhibitor, one of the more potent regimens, just you know, be careful about, mindful of what you eat. This will be the last question, and we have a Q&A, and we'll wrap up. So a common question is, should I simplify an older regimen? Um, this could be all kinds of things, but at least the case I chose to present uh, is this 57-year-old guy who transfers to you, you don't, you don't have any data, diagnosed in 01, he had a prior OI way back when, but done well clinically since then, and now he's just, I've taken too many pills. That's his complaint. Um, he's taken a lot of drugs in the past, but no exposure to any of the integrase inhibitors, um, except for raltegravir, which he's on now, and it's working. CD4 count is 3, 430, and his viral load is less than 20. His max was 667,000, and his nadir was um, 
was six. So he's done well, but he's just, look how many pills he's on. He just doesn't like it. So at this point, are you going to continue the seven pills or reduce them to something less than that? And I've helped you with putting pills in parentheses on each of these right here. Pray, nephew, what dost thou mean? Well, I'll tell you. The fruit of life can't always taste like sweet persimmons. Sometimes it's hard to swallow, I'm afraid. But when life has handed you some lemons, this is called then hand it back a mug of lemonade. My father said this to me that he did, and then he blew me away with wisdom, simple and okay, concise. Okay, let's see what we got. All right. Most of you say, I'm going to listen to this guy and try to do something else. Panel? Is that something else? How, would you all change him? I suspect you would, probably, because he's complaining about it. Is there any, what are your rules of what you might change him to? You don't have the resistance data. He is suppressed on what he's on. Thoughts? I mean, I guess in this case, you are comfortable with your insti that he's not yep. been exposed to others. I'd certainly Seems switch him away active. from RAL into dolutegravir or right. bictegravir. You know, if you want to play, and a lot, again, this is a lot with the patient, how closely are they going to follow up and so on. The safest choice probably would be then also including a boosted PI because we know that to both of those regimens, it's unusual to get resistance, although he may in the past have had non-boosted PIs depending on how long he's been in the system, and, and that may not be true. However, he may do just fine on, you know, uh, the audience choice, TAF, FTC, BIC, or, uh, or you know, um, DALU. Um, and uh, to me, again, the key is follow-up. If he's got pre-existing mutations to, to tenofovir and FTC, um, and he, you switch and he's not doing well, you can very quickly get a genotype at that point and get a lot more information if he's going to follow up with you very closely while you determine if this works. If you're concerned about that, then you, or he really wants to not take any chances, then you might go to something with a couple more pills and a little bit more barrier, or a little bit more certainty. Other comment, John. Well, yeah, this is one of those situations, you know, in, um, where you might actually tr try the, uh, the proviral DNA, you know, resistance testing, where pa patients who have had, um, you know, long-term antiviral therapy, multiple different regimens, and, and um, you know, at this point, you're not sure what resistance is, is present. Uh, you know, there really hasn't been a lot of studies on those right. assays, and I don't even know what to make of them sometimes, yeah. but this could yeah. be, yeah, you know, if, you know <laughs> it, it, it might... It, you know, if it shows you lots of resistance, I think that could be helpful right. here. Mm -hmm. right. but I think the only thing I would worry about is, is there a K65R? Mm -hmm. That would be a game changer in terms of some of the simpler regimens. But he's being suppressed on a tenofovir-based regimen now. I think it's, you could do either one. But it is, we do see these types of folks, and I think simplifying, I think a common theme of this entire panel, when in doubt, listen to the patient. Right? Mm -hmm. Have a discussion. And we all do that. I mean, that's just part of, I mean, HIV docs are great providers. And, uh, and we all do a really good job of listening and, and chiming in. So that's great. We have uh, time for about maybe seven minutes by my watch of questions. So I'm going to rapid fire to the panel these question cards and just quick questions, quick answers, OK? Um, what if patients have cardiovascular risk factors? For example, would you use a Bacavir, yes, no? No. Most people would avoid it. Avoid. You've yeah. got other options. Yeah. Okay. 
Um, I think the jury's still out on that. Yeah. But it seems to be a platelet problem if it's going to be Probably. Yep. Uh, that's what it seems to be, a right. platelet um, aggregation. Right. Dalyotegravir 3TC. Um, what if, uh, let's see, drug reaction, uh, drug resistance. So we kind of answered that as an M184V, mm -hmm. yeah. that's a no-go, right? Okay. Um, so there's a, somebody says the jaded curmudgeon, this must be one of our 27-year attendees. Um, um, there's, is there some element of a, um, of a pharmaceutical company pushing us to use, to start therapy on day one? Because some regimens are easier to start on day one than if you wait for data to come back. Do you sense that there's a jaundiced person's eye you know, I don't, think that, I don't think that was the intention of anybody who was doing the earlier start. If somebody's taking advantage of that, that you can't be blamed on the concept. And I think jaded curmudgeons would be a great name for a polka band. Yeah, that are, <laughs> are my next cat. Yeah. I, I do yeah. think people are taking advantage of it, but I totally yeah. agree yeah. with you, right. Jeff. Yeah. Okay, so the question came up, we had the discussion about elite controllers. Cost effectiveness, E. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 yeah, no, I, I mean, up to now, we're still trying to figure out whether or not to treat. I don't think people have really done cost-effectiveness. Uh, yeah, it's unlikely there. to be cost-effective over the next couple of years. Yeah, right? decade. It's more of a longer-term. Yeah. We also don't have clinical endpoints, that's right. right, to try to figure out what the costs are. Right, right. but a quick, a quick question then to, uh, to John. In your experience with all these elite controllers, how many of them ultimately go on to progress? Yeah, actually, so in, that, in our study, um, 5308, this is with uh, uh, Paul Sachs, uh, Florencia Pereira, you know, we started them on, this is, this is actually several years ago, so before Dalyotegravir, we started them on a ropivirine, um, uh, tenofovir FTC uh, regimen, and actually it was very well tolerated. And the, they were treated for one year with an option of going on for a second year, and most of them chose to continue it for a second year because it was so well tolerated. And they had a, we gave them a quality of life survey, and they... Um, there was a significant, you know, improvement in quality of life. Um, of course, there, I mean, there's no placebo group here, right? So, but uh, but but most of them continued on um, ART, and actually, that's why we only have so few patients who will be followed off ART. There's only four yeah. of those individuals. Okay, uh, let's look at uh, your personal views of the role of deravirine right now. I haven't used That's it yet. That's a quick answer. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, it's, it's interesting because it does have, um, have resistance properties that make it attractive mm -hmm. with, you know, basic NNRTI So if there was a K103N, you'd be comfortable right, so if there's using a K, it there. It's mm -hmm. effective against K103N. So I think there are certainly instances where, you know, you could throw that into the mix with someone who has a lot of resistance and So you you're the perfect person to ask this to. What if they came up with a long-acting formulation and the company that makes it pairs it up with 8591? Yeah, what if? What if? What if? It could well, be. That'll be, could be. our I 29th mean, course, if you're here for that, we'll probably be discussing that. One of the okay, nice things I, about Draverine is it's paired with TDF3TC, um, so it theoretically should be cheaper since that's generic. Yeah. Um, however, I've been a little disappointed that the cost hasn't come in much lower. Yeah, the, the, yeah, the, yeah. 
But the other problem with Doravarine is that, you know, when they're doing their phase three trials, they, they took the easy way out, right? I mean, they, right. they put it up against Efavirenz, yeah. they put it up against Darunavir, both of which were beaten by the, by the instincts. They, they weren't brave enough to put it up against an integrase inhibitor. And well, so that's, it, a, that's an issue, I feel. Like. It is an issue that there are no, no trials. I, I, I would question whether it was bravery or just that when the trials were designed, mm. it was a time when, you know, we weren't saying everybody starts with an integrase inhibitor. These trials were designed a long time ago, and so it was, the, in many ways, the slowness of the system in getting those trials out. But there are no comparisons with integrase inhibitors. So I have one comment from a medical case manager who says that it may be stupid to check these CD4 counts, but I'm stupid for <laughs> recommending that we do this because they're still going to be held accountable for it. I hear you. But I'm just saying, it's true. I hear you, but we should be activists. Silence equals death, at least silence equals unnecessary testing in this case. So we all just be, in my opinion, pushing for it. And I think, I think HRSA will listen. Um, but until then, you're right, it's a conundrum. Um, low level HIV RNA, um, how about for simplification? It's got somebody who's kind of buzzing along and then you want to sort of simplify the regimen from, let's say, that seven drug to two drug, would you be less comfortable there? Or three drug, not two drug, sorry. Like what they've picked. Um, yes. You know, and in, in, I'll tell you, in um, the patient that we had, um, when we did proviral sequencing, so, so in the plasma, the patient did have TAM2 mutations, right? But not, obviously, the darunavir, darutegavir will still be fine. But actually, when we um, uh, did... Uh, um, Proviral sequencing, we found some proviruses that had TAM1s, TAM2s, and MYA4B. It just wasn't pleasant, right. present in the plasma. So there might be additional resistance mutations yeah. that you're just not seeing. It's with tough. Some, you know, and so I, I think it, I'd be, um, I probably yeah, would not simplify. One comment here, just for the audience, I agree, is that it could be that some people who went off of ritonavir-based regimen that may have been in inhibiting their appetite to say an integrase inhibitor where their appetite was better, they gained weight. Yep, that's probably right. I'll make one comment too. If you think though that your low level viremia person is because they're on seven drugs and they can't take them all, sometimes right. you good. actually do win by simplifying them because sure. they can become more adherent. So if you think yeah. adherence is an issue, that's a time. So it all depends yes, at the end of the day. Yep. All right, so let's say you have some low level viremia type patient and they're, they're on TAF FTC boosted Elvitegravir single dose tablet and you want to switch to another integrase inhibitor, do, would, you want to, would you want to do that because of the concern of a lower genetic barrier of the alvitegravir? In other words, is that low-level viremia, is there any concern that there might be de novo replication that could lead to integrase resistance? Yeah, I mean, I think, I, I mean, to, to me, I think there, a, 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 there's definitely a subset of individuals with low-level viremia due to suboptimal adherence or, or maybe poor drug absorption or some other issue. And so that, that definitely is an, a worry on my mind. And um, uh, being on a, you know, big tegravir, dark tegravir definitely makes a lot of sense mm -hmm. for those individuals. And the, the last couple of questions are about, I guess, more to Melanie. When do you expect long-acting drugs to be available outside of clinical trials? And she so, just Well, that. yeah, and, and actually, I think they're um, going to file with the FDA for that later in the year. It may be first of next year. I'm not really sure, but you know, I think, I think we're gonna see them um, fairly soon. So you know, I think we need to begin, begin to think about how we're gonna implement them. 